Chapter One of Wild Wales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Steve Goff. Wild Wales by George Borrow. Chapter One. In the summer of the year eighteen fifty four, myself, wife, and daughter determined upon going into Wales to pass a few months there. We are country people, of a corner of East Anglia, and, at the time of which I am speaking, had been residing so long on our own little estate, that we had become tired of the objects around us, and conceived that we should be all the better for changing the scene for a short period. We were undetermined for some time with respect to where we should go. I proposed Wales from the first, but my wife and daughter— who have always had rather a hankering after what is fashionable, said they thought it would be more advisable to go to Harrogate or Leamington. On my observing that those were terrible places for expense, they replied that, though the price of corn had of late been shamefully low, we had a spare hundred pounds or two in our pockets, and could afford to pay for a little insight into fashionable life. I told them that there was nothing I so much hated as fashionable life, but that, as I was anything but a selfish person, I would endeavour to stifle my abhorrence of it for a time, and attend them either to Leamington or Harrogate. By this speech I obtained my wish, even as I knew I should, for my wife and daughter instantly observed that, after all, they thought we had better go into Wales, which, though not so fashionable as either Leamington or Harrogate, was a very nice, picturesque country, where, they had no doubt, they should get on very well, more especially as I was acquainted with the Welsh language. It was my knowledge of Welsh, such as it was, that made me desirous that we should go to Wales, where there was a chance that I might turn it to some little account. In my boyhood I had been something of a philologist, and had picked up some Latin and Greek at school, some Irish in Ireland, where I had been with my father, who was in the army, and subsequently, whilst an article clerk to the first solicitor in East Anglia, indeed I may say the prince of all English solicitors, for he was a gentleman, had learned some Welsh, partly from books, and partly from a Welsh groom, whose acquaintance I made. A queer groom he was, and well deserving of having his portrait drawn. He might be about forty-seven years of age, and about five feet eight inches in height, his body was spare and wiry, his chest rather broad, and his arms remarkably long. His legs were of the kind generally known as spindle-shanks, but vigorous withal, for they carried his body with great agility. Neck he had none, at least that I ever observed, and his head was anything but high, not measuring, I should think, more than four inches from the bottom of the chin to the top of the forehead. His cheekbones were high, his eyes grey and deeply sunk in his face, with an expression in them partly sullen and partly irascible. His complexion was indescribable. The little hair which he had, which was almost entirely on the sides and the back part of his head, was of an iron-grey hue. He wore a leather hat on ordinary days, low at the crown, and with the side eaves turned up. A dirty pepper-and-salt coat, a waistcoat that had once been red, but which had lost its pristine colour, and looked brown. Dirty yellow leather breeches, grey worsted stockings, 
and high lows. Surely I was right when I said he was a very different groom to those of the present day, whether Welsh or English. What do you say, Sir Watkin? What do you say, my Lord of Exeter? He looked after the horses and occasionally assisted in the house of a person who lived at the end of an alley, in which the office of the gentleman to whom I was articled was situated. And having passed by the door of the office half a dozen times in the day, he did not fail to attract the notice of the clerks, who, sometimes individually, sometimes by twos, sometimes by threes, or even more, not unfrequently, stood at the door, bareheaded, misspending the time which was not legally their own. Sundry observations, none of them very flattering, did the clerks, and amongst them myself, make upon the groom as he passed and repassed. Some of them direct, others somewhat oblique. To these he made no reply, save by looks, which had in them something dangerous and menacing, and clenching without raising his fists, which looked singularly hard and horny. At length a whisper ran about the alley that the groom was a Welshman. This whisper much increased the malice of my brother clerks against him, who were now, whenever he passed the door, and they happened to be there by twos or threes, in the habit of saying something as if by accident against Wales and the Welshmen, and, individually or together, were in the habit of shouting out, Taffy, when he was at some distance from them, and his back was turned, or regaling his ears with the harmonious and well-known distich of Taffy was a Welshman, Taffy was a thief, Taffy came to my house and stole a piece of beef. It had, however, a very different effect upon me. I was trying to learn Welsh, and the idea occurred to me that the groom might be able to assist me in my pursuit. I instantly lost all desire to torment him, and determined to do my best to scrape acquaintance with him, and persuade him to give me what assistance he could in Welsh. I succeeded, how I will not trouble the reader with describing. He and I became great friends, and he taught me what well she could. In return for his instructions, I persuaded my brother clerks to leave off hallooing after him, and to do nothing further to hurt his feelings, which had been very deeply wounded, so much so that after the first two or three lessons, he told me in confidence that on the morning of the very day I first began to conciliate him, he had come to the resolution of doing one of two things, namely, either to hang himself from the bulk of the hayloft, or give his master warning, both of which things he told me he should have been very unwilling to do, more particularly as he had a wife and family. He gave me lessons on Sunday afternoons at my father's house, where he made his appearance very respectably dressed, in a beaver hat, blue surtout, whitish waistcoat, black trousers and wellingtons, all with a somewhat ancient look. The Wellingtons, I remember, were slightly pierced at the sides, but all upon the whole very respectable. I wished at first to persuade him to give me lessons in the office, but could not succeed. No, no, lad, said he, catch me going in there. I would just as soon venture into a nest of porcupines. To translate from books I had already, to a certain degree, taught myself, and at my first visit I discovered and he himself acknowledged that at book Welsh I was stronger than himself. But I learned Welsh pronunciation from him, and to discourse a little in the Welsh tongue. Had you much difficulty in acquiring the sound of the sh? I think I hear the reader inquire. None whatever. 
The double L of the Welsh is by no means the terrible guttural which English people generally suppose it to be, being in reality a pretty liquid exactly resembling in sound the Spanish the sound of which I have mastered before commencing Welsh, and which is equivalent to the English la. So being able to pronounce llano, I had of course no difficulty in pronouncing llwyd, which, by the by, was the name of the groom. I remember I had found the pronunciation of the Welsh far less difficult than I had found the grammar, the most remarkable feature of which is the mutation, under certain circumstances, of particular consonants, when forming the initials of words. This feature I had observed in the Irish, which I had then only learnt by ear. But to return to the groom. He was really a remarkable character, and taught me two or three things beside Welsh pronunciation, and to discourse a little in Cymraeg. He had been a soldier in his youth, and had served under Moore and Wellington in the Peninsular campaigns, and from him I learnt the details of many a bloody field and bloodier storm, of the sufferings of poor British soldiers, and the tyranny of haughty British officers, more especially of the two commanders just mentioned, the first of whom he swore was shot by his own soldiers, and the second more frequently shot at by British than French. But it is not deemed a matter of good taste to write about such low people as grooms. I shall therefore dismiss him with no observation further than that after he visited me on Sunday afternoons for about a year, he departed for his own country with his wife, who was an Englishwoman, and his children, in consequence of having been left a small freehold there by a distant relation, and that I neither saw nor heard of him again. But though I had lost my oral instructor, I still had my silent ones, namely the Welsh books, and of these I made such use that before expiration of my clerkship I was able to read not only Welsh prose, but, what was infinitely more difficult, Welsh poetry, in any of the four-and-twenty measures, and was well versed in the compositions of various of the old Welsh bards, especially those of David ap Gwilym, whom, since the time when I was first acquainted with his works, I have always considered as the greatest poetical genius that has appeared in Europe since the revival of literature. After this exordium, I think I may proceed to narrate the journey of myself and family into Wales. As perhaps, however, it will be thought that, though I have said quite enough about myself and a certain groom, I have not said quite enough about my wife and daughter, I will add a little more about them. Of my wife I will merely say that she is a perfect paragon of wives, can make puddings and sweets and treacle posset, and is the best woman of business in East Anglia. For my stepdaughter, for such she is, though I generally call her daughter, and with good reason, seeing that she has always shown herself a daughter to me, that she has all kinds of good qualities, and several accomplishments, knowing something of conchology, more of botany, drawing capitally in the Dutch style, and playing remarkably well on the guitar, not the trumpery German thing so called, but the real Spanish guitar. End of chapter 1